five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast in partnership with Kidney Care UK, sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. My name is Dean Moore, and I am a stage four kidney warrior. This podcast is dedicated to encourage, educate, and inspire as we explore all aspects of kidney disease, chronic illnesses, and health. If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like me to cover, please get in contact with me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. In today's episode, Returning to answer your transplant questions is consultant transplant surgeon, Dr. Frank Dorr. Hi and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior, the podcast. How are you doing today, Dr. Frank? Yeah, I'm uh, doing very well. Thank you. Excited to be back. I am absolutely buzzing to have you back. Honestly, it is a real honour to be able to interview you today. For those of you who are new to the podcast, this is actually... My second interview with Dr. Frank, the first interview was episode 21 of the podcast. Please do check that out where Dr. Frank and I looked at questions that were sent in by podcast listeners. And there's lots of information there that you can refer back to. But this episode is actually the first under the partnership with Kidney Care UK. So I'm doubly excited to be interviewing you today. So thank you again for your time. Pleasure. And congratulations uh, to both of you, Kidney Care UK, for having you on board and you for being part of that wonderful organisation. So it really uh, is a win-win situation. Oh, thank you. So we've got some really, really good questions that have been submitted by the podcast listeners. And the first question comes from Rachel. Rachel asks... Is research underway to check efficiency of COVID-19 vaccine in transplant patients? Yeah, um, this, of course, is is what everyone wants to know. Um, I'm delighted, actually, there's lots and lots of research going on uh, in many centres in the UK, but also in the rest of the world, because this question has been bothering us since the beginning of the pandemic. How would COVID affect transplant patients? And then the vaccines came, became available. How successful would the vaccines be in transplant patients and in transplant waitlisted patients and kidney patients in general? Um, so I know there's a, I can share, there's a very recent um, outcome report of a big registry um, research project done here in the UK that was linked with the COVID vaccination database and also the the COVID registry, um, showing that now, uh, up to the 24th of June, I believe it is, 80% of all transplant patients and transplant waitlisted patients, so this is beyond kidney only, um, have had two doses of the vaccine. So 80% in the UK, which is good, but you could still see room for improvement there. In London, the uptake was a little bit lower, unfortunately, so 75% compared to 80%. And certain groups, unfortunately, um, the uptake was less, so 65% to 75% in Black, um, Asian, and other minority ethnicities, as it's officially called, BAME population. 
So again, room for improvement. But that's just how many people were vaccinated fully. If you compare people um, that had no vaccine at all, and that is 6,700, um, 7% of them, so 466, unfortunately got COVID. Um, and this is key here. From these people who were not vaccinated and got COVID, 40% unfortunately died. So this is really high. That We're talking about 189 people that died within 28 days after a COVID positive test. Now, now watch this carefully because 39,000 transplant patients that did get fully vaccinated, less than 1% got COVID. So this is a handful of patients. It's 76 that got COVID. And only, well, it's always too many, of course, but only six of them died. So that's 8%. So there's a huge, huge difference in um, in mortality, as we say, so the number of patients that died that were vaccinated versus non-vaccinated. So this shows vaccine is working, even in transplant patients who receive immunosuppression. And also, if you look at the waitlisted patients, the same trend is seen. So we had 650 waitlisted patients who didn't get vaccinated. 8% got COVID, so 51 patients. 17% died. So that's less than the transplant patients, but still, you know, an awful lot of, of people. In this case, eight people in total of that cohort, but it's still a high percentage. 3,100 patients that were on the transplant wait list but had a vaccination, again, less than 1% got COVID, and no one died of these 650. So for me, this is very strong data. And of course, this, this gives a lot of reassurance that we should keep going with the vaccines. The biggest point, um, of course, that we still need to determine is what is the best readout? So how can we determine if you've had your two doses, if you're fully protected or not on an individual level? Because, you know, we can test how what your titer of antibodies uh, uh, is that has been um, has been generated by giving the vaccine. Um, so basically, you know, what's your antibody level? Um, but that's not the only thing that's important. And also, because you can just test basically the, um, how many antibodies you have, but it doesn't say anything about that functionality. So I could have thousands, a titer of, a very high titer of antibodies in my blood after my vaccines, but my response might actually be equally good to someone who has a lower level of antibodies. And then antibodies is only one part of the equation. Um, the virus gets killed by uh, activating your know, highly educated T lymphocytes. So those are specific white cells that are often uh, reduced in number, but predominantly um, uh, basically suppressed by immunosuppressive medication to prevent rejection in transplant patients. These T lymphocytes are very important players as well. And there's you know, lots of research going on um, to see if levels of T lymphocytes or the functionality thereof um, can predict your individual response to COVID because of the vaccine. So it could be that uh, I'm 100% sure that in the next year or so, um, we are learning what the best readout is um, to say I have a good efficacy on my vaccine. Um, and also, we might be able to, uh, on an individual level, predict 
sort of if that's good enough for you um, and if you're fully protected. Now, of course, it becomes more difficult because with all the mutations of the COVID virus itself, it might be that at some point um, we're going to see a, a variant of the virus that might not, um, um, you know, that might escape basically the antibodies or the T lymphocytes um, that we generated because of the earlier vaccines. This is nothing new. This is the same for, for the regular flu. That's why, you know, everyone has to have their regular flu vaccinations every year because new variants will pop up. I'm sure they will. And we have seen it already a couple of times here in the UK. Now, so far, thankfully, um, you know, we see rising incidents of COVID um, infections in the UK, but it looks like, um, so far at least, and thankfully, that the numbers of hospitalizations, uh, ITU admissions and patient death um, are you know, very, very low compared to the previous waves. So I'm optimistic. Um, but research is still you know, needed to continue um, at, at full speed and with all the support we can get. And thankfully, lots of transplant patients and kidney patients in general are so um, uh, immensely fantastic by participating to all these uh, research projects and uh, making sure that we learn as quickly as possible how we can protect you as patients uh, to the max we can. Now, I know, for example, um, I think this will happen as well, is that, um, for example, other countries are giving a, a third vaccine, a booster, basically, to transplant patients and other immunosuppressed patients. This, this is something that I think is being considered at the moment in the UK as well for, 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 for specific vulnerable groups. Um, and this might be uh, based on low antibody um, uh, responses after vaccine or just in general. I think the, the jury is not out there yet, but I think we can expect um, transplant patients to, uh, to qualify for third uh, vaccines um, soon-ish in the UK. I think I should stop there because we can talk about COVID <laughs> and the vaccines for hours alone. Um, but this is, the, I think, the, the biggest breaking news uh, from actual UK data. So Rachel goes on to ask, is there a plan if the vaccine is not working and we begin to see breakthrough cases in double dose transplant patients? Yeah, I think the plan is there for firstly, consider the third vaccine. So basically the booster that I was just talking about. Um, and there's so much developmental work in, in vaccine world happening that I'm sure that people are already anticipating uh, to creating vaccines with different mechanisms uh, to uh, induce immunity against the virus. Um, and I think this started sooner before we actually thought about it, uh, I'm sure. Because luckily we can say that from everything COVID-related, science has really, really been developed quickly and, and fast and joined up and collaboratively and this is one of the massive gains of the whole pandemic, I think, that there was transparency, there was quick publication, quick sharing of results. So I'm sure these anticipatory uh, next steps are already in development, um, should everything fail. But having said that, we have now seen, I've just shared with you the data and the figures. I hope it's, it's sort of 
understandable because you can't really see it, of course, but the massive um, reduction in deaths after COVID infections in transplant patients because of the vaccine is is the strongest that we have seen uh, so far. So this is really robust um, and high quality data. So I have a question from Nicola, which is also related to the COVID vaccination. And she's asking in terms of immunosuppressed people, and she's asking if you were in the same position, how would you go about keeping safe while the country is gearing up to open up and end legal restrictions such as mask wearing and social distancing? Yeah, of course, this is a daily um, uh, question and it's very interesting. And thank you for asking it to me directly. I think this is what we as doctors in general should do all the time. Basically, what would I do or what would I recommend my mother or my loved one um, to do in this situation? Because then you properly think about it. First of all, I do. And this is you know, not to because you are now linked with um, Kidney Care UK, but Throughout the pandemic, I have recommended patients to uh, follow government advice through Kidney Care UK advice, because amazingly, and thank you so much for all involved, um, this has been the key information, I think, for our patient cohort. So all kidney patients, all kidney transplanted patients as well, um, I advise them to go to the Kidney Care UK website to, to see what the latest government advice is. Because sometimes I, you know, just because of busyness at work, cannot see all the details for this patient group alone. And you just want to make sure there is a central point that gives out the most accurate information. What I would do at the moment, uh, I think very clear, I, uh, I will have been fully vaccinated because the, you know, the benefits of the vaccine, uh, even before the, the data, official data came out that I just mentioned, um, the it makes so much sense to be fully vaccinated in order to reduce your risk should you get COVID. Because this is the key, of course, uh, you know, being vaccinated doesn't mean that you can't get COVID. Um, it's less likely to become, um, you can still get infected. But what happens after the infection? Do you get ill from it? Um, and do you get severely ill from it? Or would you even die from it? I think that risk reduction um, is, is massive. So I am assuming I would be fully vaccinated. Actually, I would um, educate other patients about the benefits of the vaccine, even though there are some risks. And of course, um, some people, unfortunately, have had complications because of the vaccine. But if you compare that in numbers and figures scientifically, it is no comparison at all. But of course, if your loved one develops uh, complications of a vaccine, this is 100,000% happening to you in your... So this is all you hear, all you read. And also, the way information is delivered to you in your personal uh, sort of um, uh, information network is highly dependent um, as to what your personal interests are. This is also the intelligent design of, for example, social media. Um, you know, if you always search uh, COVID vaccine uh, complications, somehow there is intelligence behind uh, Google and, and all other um, uh, media that you're more likely to receive information spontaneously uh, about complications of COVID-19 vaccines. Whereas 
if you are completely looking for opposite information, um, you know, the intelligence behind it will make sure that you get different information. So this is very, very important to realize. Um, so what would I do? I would try to educate other patients. Uh, I would uh, you know, make sure that my household was completely vaccinated in order to reduce all of our risks. But especially as a patient, um, I would be quite keen that others would be considerate. And I'm 100% sure that most of the people who live as a family or live in, in you know, sort of co-living households um, would be considerate of someone who is more vulnerable. Um, out on the street, obviously, I think the key is to keep protecting yourself. Um, so all the you know, general advice about hygiene, about uh, wearing masks, even though that other people might not be doing it, you can still protect yourself. Um, also, it's very difficult, of course, as a patient, because all patients have been isolating for such a long time. And I've seen people suffering. People actually still are scared to come to the hospital um, to see me. Um, in the probably most safe environment at the moment that you can imagine and how, how we have kept everyone safe in the hospital and developed pathways in outpatients to check everyone at the door. This is still happening. So even though the, the government advice for the general population is becoming more liberal, um, this is, I think, also important for many, many people uh, as well. Um, we still have very strict pathways in the hospital, outpatients, inpatients. So, for example, still no visitors are allowed um, on the ward, um, only with exceptions um, and, and things like that. So I would really try to adhere to the max, to um, all the protective uh, equipment you have. Um, but also, I think for you know, sanity and for psychosocial well-being, it's good also to go out a little bit more. And by having had the vaccines, I think you will be slowly able to relax a little bit. I'm not saying we should not be vigilant anymore, but also the feeling of going out for the very first time again um, in, in, in a controlled environment and meeting people again is an absolute necessity for the psychosocial well-being and the sanity of every individual person. We need people. We need to see people. So I won't say don't isolate, um, but I think try, based on the data as well that we've seen, that vaccinated people have less chance of uh, getting ill from COVID and, and die from COVID. There is a little bit more room for optimism. And again, follow the advice of the Kidney Care UK uh, on the website because it's always up to date um, through social channels. Um, so if you keep one reliable source of information, I think it's most important rather than trying to find all kinds of misinformation or a very popular term, of course, um, fake news, which is all over the place and can actually drive you completely crazy. I can not even imagine uh, you know, how, how insecure people have felt, how unsafe people have felt, and how much people have suffered because of this. So at some point, because I always try you know, to participate in patient education on social media, for example, um, and so I, there was some data, of course, that um, in the beginning that um, some of the vaccinations didn't really work uh, for all transplant patients. 
Um, and we share that on, on social media and some healthcare professionals you know, feel it their duty to, to do that and inform the patients to the best we can. But I actually got an anonymous um, letter from, from a patient, probably not necessarily one of my patients, but uh, saying you know, how angry he was um, that I was you know, condemning them to more self-isolation and more insecurity um, by just sharing information. Obviously, this is not the intention. The intention is always to be uh, my job and beyond my job, it's my you know, personal belief that it is my duty to inform everyone with the right information as far as we have um, and, and, and make sure that we're not condemning people to self-isolate and to try to destroy patients' lives. Not at all. It's the opposite. So I was quite... Um, yeah, upset and disappointed, actually, that people feel that way. But it also made me realize that, um, of course, you know, social media is, is great and very powerful in sharing um, and the latest news and the latest scientific developments. But it also has to be translated into, you know, in, in, into piecemeal for most of the people and patients not in the field. Um, and for me to realize what an impact only one uh, tweet can have in someone's life. Uh, so very cognizant about all that. And that's why my answer takes, uh, it feels like an hour, um, <laughs> but at least I try to, to bring it all together here and, and, and hope this gives a bit of a view as to what I would do uh, as a patient and my family and my friends and, um, and keep explaining also that you are a bit more vulnerable or much more vulnerable than others um, and people will have consideration. I, I, I'm only hoping uh, that after all we've been through together, that people will understand that whenever they are close to you, to please put on that mask and to please be considerate with some extra hand alcohol and, and, and hygiene in general. And, you know, I, I can only hope. But I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, so that's the other side of the coin. I'm really optimistic. Thank you. The next question comes from Belina, and she said, I have recently lost my kidney function and I've started peritoneal dialysis and have been placed on the kidney transplant list. My question for Dr. Frank is, I'm a black woman and I wondered if I can only receive a transplant from a black donor. Is it possible to also ask how long that might be if that's the case or not? Yeah, this is um, this is a very important question actually because it surprised me a little bit that apparently, yeah, people might still be wondering this. The beauty of transplantation is is that it goes beyond color of the skin, it goes beyond ethnicity, it goes beyond religion, and any other discriminatory factors that um, distinguishes human beings. It's about people. So that's the first principle is that it should be accessible to everyone, independent of where they come from, from all these factors I just mentioned. So the answer is very simple. No, everyone who is on the kidney transplant waiting list could have an organ of someone from the same ethnicity. But quite often, this is not the case. And also to just let you know, when I'm on call and I receive uh, an organ offer for a patient of ours, we don't even know the ethnicity or the religion or the skin color. Uh, it's not relevant. It is only relevant that there is a donor organ available for one of our patients. 
and therefore this will be always considered to the fullest if this is a suitable organ donor for that patient. There is, of course, I think I understand where this comes from, and that's why it's good that it was brought up, that certain communities in the UK, and this is not only in the UK, this is everywhere in the world, that some patients from certain communities have uh, more difficult access to transplantation waitlisting or to a live donor transplant compared to other ethnicities or um, people with a different culture. And this is not because of the skin color or the ethnicity. This is a very complex situation that lots of people in the UK and beyond are, are doing many research projects to try to improve that. But we know, indeed, there is some difference in terms of access to transplantation. But this is true for healthcare in general. And we have seen that in COVID, of course, as well, that it was clear that healthcare access is there for everyone, and it should be the same for everyone. But still, some people from certain groups will have more difficulties in finding their opportunities compared to others. And as a, you know, as a white Dutch man in the UK... I'm slightly worried that this is you know, true for the white Anglo-Saxon people, uh, uh, that, that, that access seems to be a bit more easy to certain um, parts of, of treatment and uh, treatments in the NHS, including transplant. So the key is we really have to work with people and patients and using experts to making sure that how do you show success? How did people end up being transplanted? Um, from several communities, because if we always only see, say, people from Asia um, uh, talking about transplantation, it might not resonate very well with people that uh, have a different ethnicity and have a different culture, use different words or um, use different uh, nonverbal communication. It's very important. And we've seen a few good examples. Also, I think in your podcast, you have had a few good examples of people working as patients or as patients advocates to show how particular community peer educators could help. Lots of research also implies working with religious leaders um, to see how they can play a role in their communities to, to activate patients. Because we do know from, it's not just ethnicity um, that determines healthcare access, it is also um, socioeconomic status perhaps even more important than, than ethnicity, to be honest, how can we activate patients to use their opportunities to learn at their individual, you know, in their individual language or, and I'm not talking about a different language than English, but you know probably what I mean. It's everyone needs to be addressed in a different way. And I try to apply that in every clinic I do. So irrespective of culture or religion or skin color, you always need to see who is in front of you and how how can you address that person's needs. And in order to get there, you need to just find a few, uh, in, uh, through a few very simple questions, um, can already tell you, um, you know, what do you do in life? Uh, where do you live? What is your social um, uh, status in terms of, do you have a partner? Do you have children? Um it, it makes a difference. And with a few questions, you find out what their interests are. And therefore, also, that determines how I would address people. So it's the same message, but delivered in a different way. So I think in general, in the NHS, lots of people are fully, fully aware that we need to, you know, be a bit more tailor-made 
uh, and uh, and address these 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 things in order to you know find ways for people to find their way through the NHS and um, and get optimal access to their healthcare needs. Thank you. The next question comes from Donny, and Donny asks, "I'm a potential future recipient." and was wondering if you could ask whether Dr. Frank listens to music at work. Would be interesting to find out. Yeah, fantastic question. And um, the answer is simply yes. Um, and I think most surgeons these days uh, will, um, will listen to music during operations. For me personally, um, I love music. Um, music is 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 with me for for decades and decades or I, i'm sure since the beginning of my life i've been um, a clarinetist uh, so i played music myself in in orchestras and in ensembles and um, uh, you know I, i enjoyed that a lot uh, and also i've been a choir conductor and a choir singer um, also in london uh, with the the fulham camerata in case someone listens Um, and we have not been able to sing. Uh, so I sing a lot during operating as well. So when I sing, there's no music on. Uh, and unfortunately, sometimes when I sing, people start putting music on. So I'm not <laughs> sure if everyone appreciates it. Um, but no, I have had um, you know, a decent, decent training in music. And my wife is a musician. She's a harpist. Oh. So music is everywhere. And music is always in my head. Um, But since it's such a fun question, um, it's also good to have a little bit of fun during uh, such a podcast. Um, we quite often even you know, try to find a, a song which is applicable to that particular surgical situation. Um, and then we, find, we try to you know, change the words of the song and, and, and sing it all together. And I encourage everyone to sing. And it's interesting because it's so important in what kind of atmosphere you work as a team. Because it's not just about me, because in the old days, um, you know, if I wanted to listen to opera, uh, I could listen to opera, but no one else got to decide. I think it's important that you, know, you work as a team. I might be you know, the end responsible person uh, in the night or in the morning or in the evening, um, but it's not just me who determines which music is going to be put on. So quite often we make someone the DJ of the operation <laughs> and they can choose what to play. And I love so many different music styles from, from classic to techno house music, from jazz to uh, hip hop. Um, you can name it. And music is just great. There are some situations. So for example, um, I think you should not be distracted uh, by music. So if there's crucial phases in the operation where things are really difficult, uh, because music is, um, I can't just listen to music in the background. Music does come into me. So I think when something is really difficult and uh, I have to do really crucial steps, then sometimes I ask for the music to be switched off or not to play at all if you can anticipate that it's difficult. But it helps in general creating an atmosphere uh, where everyone is relaxed, um, not distracted, but relaxed. Tension in theatres whenever you know, everyone is dead silent and doesn't dare to speak. Um, can be extremely counterproductive. So um, I like good atmosphere in theatres, and I think that's good for the patient. Just to come back, because I, I remember one time, this was in the Netherlands, um, I sometimes ask my patients, do you want to listen to music or 
when you go to sleep in the anesthetic room or um, one patient had a request for, for me to play a CD. This was Mozart Piano Concerto number 23. That was their favorite. Now, I know all of these piano concertos by heart, every single note of them. So um, they gave the CD and they started playing. And I was completely upset because it wasn't piano concerto <laughs> number 23. It was 21. So I think the patient was trying to test my knowledge uh, on the piano <laughs> concertos. Um, but we played it regardless because it's a beautiful piece. But also we can, you know, we can we can play dance music or whatever, as long as it doesn't um, hamper patient safety, of course. But some of my colleagues, um, and for example, Mr. Jeremy Crane, uh, uh, one of my colleagues, he, he developed a, a playlist on Spotify for um, for you know, music in theatres. And it's a very popular topic. Um, there were Twitter polls and what is your favourite song during operating and things like that. So it is a real thing, music and operating. And there's lots of research even that music, playing music in theatres or playing music um, um, uh, with a patient on their headphones, even on the general anaesthetic, can give them um, sort of less distress and better outcomes. So wow. um, there is something with music and, and surgeons, but also music and patients. I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. That is incredible. You know, I honestly, because um, I love music. I'm a singer, as you may know. Yeah, I know. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, to hear that, even under general anaesthetic, that it that it has um, therapeutic um, benefits. That's that's fascinating. That's really cool. So, don't ask me for next time to sing a duet, uh, right? <laughs> but. Um, the next podcast okay I'll, I'll, I'll make sure i won't do that <laughs> the next question was inspired by mark and this question is how does a surgeon decide where you position the kidney transplant so we're going back to surgical technical stuff um yeah thanks mark um this is um it's an important question because um many people actually ask me so where uh, do, do do you always take my own kidneys out, for example, and then put the kidney transplant um, on the place where one of my own kidneys was sitting? Um, and where else can you put a kidney? So basically, um, normally, um, there is no reason to remove any of the native kidneys. So basically, your own kidneys that are no longer working if you need a transplant. Um, this is just to minimize any potential risk or by, of doing that. So if there's no need to take them out, you shall not take them out. There's a few exceptions. Of course, if there are kidneys that are so large because of polycystic kidney disease, so large that they weigh up to 10 kilos or more each, and they can occupy the whole abdomen, uh, and it can actually cause um, for people to look pregnant for you know, 20 months, um, and in those cases, there's basically no space to put even a kidney transplant in the regular spot, and then we might have to take them out. And of course, if there's uh, a kidney cancer, a kidney, a native kidney will have to come out, and you have to um, uh, be cancer-free at the time you get transplanted, or shortly thereafter, we, we might have to remove one of your own kidneys, and that is all... Um, you know, decided by multidisciplinary teams um, how to approach that in case of kidney cancer. But in general, kidneys stay, uh, your own kidneys stay in place. 
also, um, uh, so normally a kidney transplant goes, as we call, in the iliac fossa. This is a space that normally doesn't exist. It's basically, um, if you look at it on your own abdomen, it's the lower part of your abdomen, just above the groin. Um, why is that that we put it there? We need good blood vessels to connect the kidney blood vessels onto. Um, and also we want to be close to the bladder because the, uh, the urinary tube, the ureter of the kidney graft, will have to be connected to the bladder to make sure that all the urine that the kidney is hopefully making, the transplant of the kidney is hopefully making very soon, will be transported into the bladder. So this is the principle. Um, so in general, we use this iliac fossa and we sew the kidney transplant arteries and veins onto the iliac arteries and veins of the patient and the ureter onto the bladder. Now, of course, it could be that, uh, for example, a, a patient has very bad atherosclerosis. Um, so there could be lots of chalk in the blood pipes. Um, and if there's chalk in the blood pipes, calcifications, it could be rock hard. And there is no way that we can place clamps to close the blood pipe where we have to interrupt the blood flow briefly to connect um, uh, the kidney graft blood pipes to, um, and let alone that we come with a very fine thread to do the sewing part with. Um, you can't even get a needle through rock I mean, this makes sense. So it sometimes is not possible to do it at the ideal spot. And the ideal spot is the iliac fossa. So sometimes you have to go slightly higher up on the same arteries, but closer, uh, higher up in the abdomen. Sometimes you even have to do it, as we call it, intra-abdominally. So we have to then open up the, the abdomen in the midline um, and, and do the kidney transplant high up in, in, in blood vessels. This could be because of the vascular situation, or it could be that you've had previous transplants that were you know, originally in the ideal spot in the iliac fossa. But if there are already two transplants there, um, you can either take them out, which we normally, most of us don't prefer to do. And I'll come back to that. And then you just go higher up and you place the kidney intra-abdominally. Then still... How it needs to sit is, is determined by the anatomy and also by the kidney itself. So the kidney, a kidney is not a kidney. A kidney looks almost all the same, but actually, if you look at it in detail, kidneys are very different. Um, where the arteries go in, how many arteries there are, um, and, and how the veins come out of the kidney and how many veins there are might determine as to where you can connect them to the patient's um, blood vessels. And of course, since people are so different, um, the blood vessels of the recipient might also be different um, in, in terms of the size and the shape and, and how they run uh, through your body. So in the end, it all is determined basically by all these factors. Um, and I've, I've placed kidneys in, in the most weird uh, places. Um, and sometimes it could be that of course, you feel the kidney and you can even see the kidney. This could be if the recipient is very slim and uh, the kidney is extremely large, um, uh, then uh, you can transplant them fine and you can close the skin hopefully fine. But then if you look at people or patients, you might see a little bulge, which is the new kidney. There's nothing wrong with that. 
and it might be that is um, determined by the position that the kidney wants to sit in um, to get optimal blood flow and blood coming out of the, the kidney in order to um, prevent any issues. So it is not just by the likes of the surgeon, it is because of good reasons. And normally this is anatomy of the kidney blood vessels and the anatomy of the patient um, and how many transplants there are there. I promise to get back, D to, um, to the fact old transplants, so transplants that might have unfortunately failed after the next number of years, hopefully. Um, there is, um, we normally try not to do graft nephrectomies, as we call that operation, unless it is really necessary. Because it could be that if you take the kidney out, first of all, it's sometimes a horrendous operation because everything is very stuck down. Uh, after years and years of having a transplant, it really sort of um, becomes um, you know, a part of your body. So it is all, you know, there's lots of scar tissue around it and it, and it could be completely stuck down, which is, yeah, it could be technically very challenging if it's stuck down onto the blood pipes uh, in the iliac fossa, for example, um, for it to come out, you really then have to be very careful and it could be an operation with quite some blood loss. Um, so if you don't need it, uh, don't do it. Um, and the second thing with that is if you remove, uh, for example, a rejected kidney um, that you know, doesn't work anymore, it could be that antibodies against uh, various types of tissue types, so various types of HLA for those who are uh, knowledgeable about the tissue type nomenclature, um, uh, those antibodies might actually you know, come out of the graft, uh, but end up in the blood circulation. And that means that you know, you're, uh, you're less likely to find a right match for an next transplant. So there's all kinds of considerations. But in general, the rule in surgery is if you don't have to do something invasive or potentially difficult or potentially dangerous, don't do it. Um, and that's why we have an ideal, we have two ideal places. We have an iliac fossa on the right, an iliac fossa on the left. So we always will try uh, to put the kidneys there. And if it's really uh, the only possible, uh, the only possibility um, to go back to an old fossa that had been used before, uh, but the kidney is still there, we sometimes will remove um, a, a previously transplanted but failed kidney in order to get you transplanted again. Thank you. Mark also asks, did you take any footage or pictures you can share? So I'm almost assuming that Mark is one of my transplant patients, but uh, we'll discuss that further in the clinic if needed. Um, in general, I can answer this very, um, there's very strict guidance and guidelines and, and, and moral codes for this. So first of all, if I take pictures um, during an operation, this is with explicit consent of the patient. So um, it could be, of course, very valuable. And sometimes people wish to see their kidney uh, that they're going to get from their brother or loved one. Um, and sometimes people want to see what kidney did I donate in, in case of life donation. Of course, this can be planned. Um, so if people ask me, can I have a picture, please? I will do that with their consent. Um, if you take 
pictures of a patient during operation because you find something extraordinary, um, you know, uh, interesting for for students or or, uh, or surgeons in training that you wish to share um, during educational sessions. Of course, you can. But what you then need to do is, after the operation, explain that you know something really interesting for future generation surgeons came by. We took some pictures of that. We show it to the patient if they want, and then get their consent to actually use them. Uh, if they don't consent, honestly, I never came across people who didn't want to uh, participate in educating the next generation. But should people feel very strongly, of course, you cannot keep them on your camera. Um, and you have to destroy them. Um, and if you want to use them on social media, then you have to get a specific content for sharing um, any footages or, uh, or, or images online uh, or in social media. And you have to make sure that there is no patient identifiable uh, items there. So it has to be a pure technical picture without the face or, you know, uh, um, uh, anything that would give up their uh, <laughs> their identity potentially for those who know them, um, you know, very personal tattoo or things like that. So uh, very strict rules for that. Um, I must say I find it uh, very good that these rules exist. It protects people from, you know, being sitting on, on cameras without knowing that you are photographed or um, if, for example, the BBC comes by and wants to film an operation, it really needs to be carefully prepared with the patient or with the living donor. And you need to you know, get consent for everything you do in that regard. So um, I'm personally very strict in adhering to, to that and also to educate uh, my trainees and fellows uh, on this topic. Thank you. Tamara asks... Are there specific exercises that can be done to improve muscle tone stroke meshing in the area overlying the transplanted kidney? Yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a very good question. First of all, Tamara, I think, you know, um, also on a personal level, I think exercise is massively important um, and something that I would recommend every transplant patient uh, to do. Uh, the exercises you can do are, of course, various. In general, um, we normally advise people not to exercise um, in the first six to eight weeks after a transplant or after a living donation, uh, just so that the tissues uh, underlying the skin, so these are normally muscles and the stronger part of muscles called fascia, um, they need to heal more properly. So even though the skin might be healed um, completely, um, and you, you only see the scar, um, the tissues uh, underneath that are you know, overlying the kidney uh, are equally important to, to heal. So if they don't heal properly, and if you start you know, uh, doing uh, sit-ups and all kinds of uh, core and abs work um, before that time, it actually might result in a weakness of the wound on the inside, and this might cause uh, a hernia to develop. So a hernia is basically an incisional hernia. So that is a hernia that is developing in the wound. And obviously um, uh, that can always happen. And normally there's about three to 5%, I think, lifetime risk for kidney transplant patients to develop a hernia based on, on a weakness. This could be uh, because of a, a wound infection or indeed 
less strong tissue um, or impaired wound healing uh, because of uh, prednisolone that you're taking, because of immunosuppression that you have to take, uh, because you're diabetic, because people smoke, um, because people are obese. These are all sort of risk factors for a hernia from developing after kidney transplant. In general terms, um, you know, once the healing is, is done and dusted and normally get advice from your surgeon um, uh, if you want to know specifics, um, then it should be good enough to start exercising. And I always recommend getting a professional there. Um, so either a physiotherapist that knows um, how to work with people after surgery or even after kidney transplantation uh, or a personal trainer with some specific knowledge that you can work with to slowly build up again. I think the, the principle is always um, start slow and don't start at your old level. Uh, if you go to the gym and start you know, at the same level as you were working before, it might actually be um, uh, counterproductive and it might, might cause you more harm than, than benefit. Um, there's no real specific exercises, to my knowledge, uh, that would strengthen those muscles overlying the kidney transplanted um, area. Um, but always just get professional advice on that. And this is definitely not my profession. Uh, I'm not a personal trainer. I really have to work with my personal trainer very hard, which I do. Um, but I, I don't know of any specific exercise that would strengthen the muscle tone, which is, of course, very important. Um, we always try with a kidney transplant to not cut too much muscle and to stay in certain anatomical planes um, that would avoid um, uh, us having to cut muscles. Because I do believe that indeed bulging of muscles because they lose their normal tonus um, can actually result from using um, a different path during your incision and your way towards this iliac fossa to put the kidney transplant in. But sometimes it is unavoidable. And this is something, you know, it, it's not done on purpose, but the kidney has to sit uh, in a specific way and the kidney will have to work and we do everything to make it work. So sometimes, indeed, people will have some bulging of the muscle or it can be perceived bulging, but it actually might be just a very big kidney sitting safe and sound on the very strong muscles um, uh, after transplantation, as I was just alluding to. So hopefully this answers your question. There's no specific exercises, to my knowledge. Uh, there's no new techniques uh, to minimize bulging. I really am an advocate of a muscle-sparing uh, incision technique that I'm using, and I don't believe in, in massive, massive incisions uh, to do a kidney transplant. I always try to minimize surgical trauma, but you can only do that as a surgeon um, if you still have the best exposure um, for, for your transplant to be successful. So we should not compromise the safe transplant outcome and a good transplant outcome just because we're just trying to make the incision so small um, that we run into trouble because of that. So many aspects, but these are um, hopefully some answers to your question. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, I'm going to end with a fun question, which was inspired by Nikki. And this question is, if you're in surgery for like 20 hours plus, how do you go to the toilet? <laughs> yeah, 
Um, well, you know, we're all human beings and uh, surgeons um, might have believed in the past that they were uh, uh, supernatural or whatever. <laughs> um, we're all people and uh, we all need to go to the toilet. And um, but surgery is all about being prepared. So this includes um, you need to make sure, you know, you have eaten something and um, uh, you need to always be ready um, to, to operate. So it's like, um, you know, an athlete. If you have to perform, um, you, need to, you need to take a few steps in order to get ready. And everyone has their own little routine. It's quite fun to see because um, many colleagues have their individual routine. Some people always do things in the same way. What I do is very simple. Uh, right before I start an operation, I just go to the toilet in order to avoid me getting stressed um, that I have to go to the toilet during surgery. Um, the good thing is, well, and the bad thing at the same time is that we cannot drink uh, during an operation. So my longest operation, um, and I think we covered that in the past, uh, in the, the previous podcast, was about 27 hours. Um, and this, of course, is an, an, an abnormal situation. In this case, it was a very complex liver transplant. Um, normally, kidney transplants uh, last between two and four hours. Um, so rarely... You're operating for more than four hours in a row. Um, it might be that you have multiple transplants to do um, and you know lined up after each other. But normally in four hours, we can manage if you've emptied your bladder, etc. Uh, before you start to operate um, without drinking, it's very highly likely that you don't need to go to the toilet. But obviously, sometimes you really um, get thirsty and uh, unfortunately you can't drink. Um, but in all honesty, during operating, um, is so concentrated that it's all, even if there's music around, uh, music doesn't make you pee as far as I know, but it's all about the operation. And if there is an instance, um, it, you know, I think it happened to me once or twice in all these years that I really had to go to the toilet and I had to de-scrub, um, and you, you can still, of course, pick a moment where no crucial steps are being made um, and you can live, leave for five minutes to go in and out. But you have to scrub in again and sterilize again um, and do all the steps again as you would uh, before in a new operation. So, yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah, we're all human beings, as you can uh, imagine. I always make sure I've eaten something beforehand because you never know uh, how difficult it's going to be and when your next uh, possible meal or um, you know, even a, a bite uh, could be. So it's all about being prepared. Um, and yes, surgeons go to the toilet as well. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Frank, for answering all of the podcast listeners' questions and also a couple of others that were thrown in as a surprise. It's been an absolute pleasure interviewing you today and thank you so much for your time likewise d um and thanks for um you know sharing all these um announcements and um and to get questions from actual patients because we can talk you know from my perspective or your perspective but the, the true value i think of these podcasts um is that we get you know questions that that they always have wanted to ask but don't dare to ask or have asked before and never got a real answer to it um, and uh, yeah, I'm just hoping that this is another opportunity for people to learn a bit more about their journeys. Um, that's my passion. So uh, delighted to uh, 
keep doing that. So send all your questions and I'm sure we find appropriate people. These network is growing every second. So, um, and Kidney Care UK will absolutely facilitate this to, you know, maximize patients' opportunities to get the best healthcare. I think this is my passion and I'll do anything to help. So delighted. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. For updates and news, follow me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. New episodes of this podcast are released every other Monday. Until next time, take care and choose to live.